Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please uh, take out a Bible and open to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Last time we looked at the introduction to Ecclesiastes, giving us some, uh, just some background and some insight into exactly what this book is all about, what it means, uh, what some of the terms are. And now tonight as we jump in, we're going to see those things kind of come to life. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, Houston, we have a problem? Well, that's not the right phrase. It's actually an erroneous misquote. That was supposed to be the radio communication between Apollo 13 and Mission Control in Houston during that, uh, that Apollo 13 space flight uh, as they were communicating the fact that there's an, there was an explosion on the, uh, on the craft. So do you want to know what the real words were to that quote? It was, okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. But doesn't it sound better? Houston, we have a problem. Just something that we've gotten used to. You know, similar words to that could have been spoken by Solomon as he mistakenly discovers that life is not worth living. Chapter 1 in this book is his declaration of that false conclusion. He's basically saying, humanity, we have a problem. And he does it through a series of various experiments, which will happen throughout the remainder of the book. Chapter 1 is setting forth this hypothesis. You know, in science, experiments are performed in order to prove or disprove something, right? A hypothesis is the initial building block in the scientific method. Many would call it an educated guess based on prior knowledge and on observation. The basic idea of a hypothesis is that there is no predetermined outcome for a hypothesis to be be termed scientific. It has to be something that can be supported or refuted through carefully crafted experimentation or observation. Now, Solomon takes most of his entire life to prove or disprove many of the theories that we're going to set forth in this book. But his basic premise, right off the bat, is that life is meaningless. Life is futile. So, as we study this book together, I want, I, I'm going to give you some of Solomon's observations, like that one. Life is vain, vanity, futile, meaningless. Alongside the biblical truth, sometimes they line up. Sometimes what Solomon states is correct, is biblically accurate. But sometimes they don't line up. So I want you, want you to have that in the back of your mind every time we get together to look, look at this book. Because you're going to hear some things that don't sound right biblically. 
that Solomon states. So a little bit of a detour to just to give perspective. So Solomon wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's not to be, um, that's not to be denied. But not everything he wrote is true and accurate. So does that mean that God's word contains errors? No, not in the way that we would naturally think of errors. See, the Bible records everything that God wants us to know. But since it's also a record of historical events and flawed people, some of those things include ungodly thoughts, deeds, actions. We read concerning wars and sin and sexual immorality. We, we read about idolatry, lack of faith, and spiritual compromise. And we certainly wouldn't want to follow any of those things, even though they're in the Bible, right? So the point is that we have this record, as documented by Solomon, but some of the things he wrote were just outright incorrect. And, it's, and I think it's important, as we track with Solomon along this journey, that we understand that some of the conclusions he comes to are not God's conclusions. So, let's keep that in mind as we dig in. Ecclesiastes 1, the first three verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? So right at the beginning here, Solomon employs the use of this very popular phrase in, in this book. It's kind of his favorite phrase, vanity of vanities. Emptiness, futility. It's like a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow, leaving no trace of existence in its wake having no effect. That's what he looks at life as. And think about it, it's a pretty gloomy description of life. Especially when compared with what Jesus said in John 10.10. Jesus says, The thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So does that sound like emptiness, futility, vanity? Jesus said, I've come to give you abundant life. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that sounds like we have a purpose. That sounds like God has prepared a work for us that have eternal value that our life is significant, and that our work for God does have a lasting legacy. It doesn't just fade away like a vapor. In verse 3, Solomon uses what I would think of as his next favorite phrase, under the sun, under the sun. He says, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? So this means... He is looking at, observing, and testing this theory from a purely human perspective. And this is where we need to have biblical understanding, because we may tend to get drawn into Solomon's 
fatalistic view of life if we don't check it against the fullness of the Scriptures. This is where we need to really be Bible students here. Because some of the things sound reasonable. Some of the things may actually remind us of how we experience some things in life. But remember that phrase, under the sun, under the sun. This is strictly from that human perspective. You see, there's a difference between man's perspective and God's perspective. And the Apostle Paul spoke about this in Colossians 3. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, or since you were raised with Christ as believers, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. This is about perspective. Our perspective in life needs to be a heavenly one, or else we'll look around us and we'll see the depravity of man and the tragic events of this world, and won't we become terribly discouraged if we only see life under the sun? Under the sun. And this this is what happened to Solomon. Because he saw much of life, and especially at the writing of this book, at this time, he saw it from a purely earthly point of view. Solomon writes in verse 3 about the prophet. He says, what profit, what, what, does, what profit has a man from all his labor? Profit being surplus, advantage, or gain. He's asking the question, in light of all the labor, the work, and the trials of this life, are we really better off? Is there any benefit or advantage to all the struggles that we go through in life? Is there any profit? Now, you may be feeling that way in your job. Maybe you feel like you're working harder than the compensation you're receiving. So you feel like the profit isn't worth all the effort. But remember, you're only looking at that from a worldly perspective. You're only looking at that as under the sun. Because even in your job, even when you feel, feel unappreciated, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work of the Lord, what? Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, my job isn't ministry. My job is a secular job. What does that have to do with the work in the Lord? Well, Paul writes further, I have the answer to that question for you. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whatever, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Your secular job is to be done to the glory of God. And why? So that you don't look at those things as unprofitable. So that you don't look at those things as vanity, as emptiness, as futility. But there's significance, there's purpose behind everything that you do. It's about perspective. It's about seeing life in a different way. Whatever we do in this life, whether it's family, 
ministry, career. We have to do it as unto the Lord. And if you have that attitude, it can change your outlook on even the most difficult situation that you find yourself in. Solomon goes on in verses 4 through 7. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls around continually and comes again to its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, they return again. So Solomon now uses these verses, verses 4 through 7, to express more about his perspective that life is vain, life is futile. Some might describe this as the circle of life. Everything just keeps going around, right? He expresses this idea as a series of endless cycles, endless cycles. The view like that has been in existence for centuries, probably from the beginning of man, that he saw life as just a series of endless cycles. And you may take comfort in that. You may, you, and that's okay. But Solomon didn't. See, Solomon saw that as a burden. He takes a more cynical view of that. What he's saying here is, if life is only part of a great cycle that goes over and over again, and we have really no control, and it just repeats itself, then what's the point? What's the point? His theory is that nature itself is permanent, but people are temporary. Man's life is but 70 or 80 years, and then death finally takes him, and, and, but, but the natural world is just a cycle that goes on forever. And he, proves, he tries to prove this by taking a look at some of the things in nature. In verse 5 he says, The sun also rises and goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. So from a strictly under-the-sun perspective, the sun goes through this cycle of rising and setting, and presumably to Solomon, and correctly, it's been doing that since the beginning of time, and will continue to do that. Yet within the cycle of the sun, people come and go, right? They're, they're born and they die. They seem temporary. The sun is permanent. It's in this cycle. It never didn't have a beginning. It will never end. But within that, he sees the temporary nature of humanity. He goes on in verse 6, The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. So he's talking here, pretty smart guy, about the wind patterns, right? And, uh, and how, they, how they flow from, uh, from north to south, east to west. And although he didn't have the scientific evidence to back it up, he understood jet streams and, and the circular patterns of the wind. But he's also describing the constancy 
of the wind. Have you ever noticed that even on the calmest day, there's still a little bit of a breeze? That it's always moving. And we see, we feel it, right? We see the evidence of it, maybe just a rustling leaf or a paper flying by. We know that the breeze is there. And for Solomon, in his perspective, it's been doing that forever, cycling around, continuing. Remember how he's looking at things now, though, right? In verse 7, he goes on and he uses another natural occurrence to prove his point. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. We see that, right? To the place from which the rivers come, yet then they return again. I mean, the ocean never overflows its banks, so to speak, you know, to the point where it's, it's more than what it can hold. So this is, again, pretty, pretty good for a guy back then, understanding kind of the evaporation cycle, you know, that the water evaporates, it goes into the clouds, it rains, it comes back, it fills it again, but it never fills it too much. But this cycle is continual over and over again. Over and over again. So whether it's the sun, the wind, or the water, it all seems to remain the same, be constant and permanent, right? And to Solomon, this brings him trouble. This troubles him. Because to him, it seems like it's out of order. He describes humanity as moving from one generation to another. People are born, people die. Yet nature seems more permanent, more stable. It moves, but it doesn't change. To Solomon's mind, it should be the other way around. Man should be stable and permanent, right? Moving between activities and relationships, but still having that steadfastness that gives certainty in an uncertain world. And that's a cynical view, but it's to be understood by Solomon, because looking at the world and the cycles and nature and then man, we kind of see things in that, in that way. But the Word of God says something quite different, about, especially about us, especially about humanity. In the creation account, God creates the world and the animals, then as if to say, I've saved the best for last, He created man and woman to fill the earth, to have a relationship with their creation, with their creator, and to subdue nature and the animal kingdom. In Genesis, in this account, in Genesis 1, look at at how this works itself out here in in verses 27 to 31. So God created man in his own image. There's your first tip-off that we are special in God's eyes. That there's something different. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit Yields to yield seed to you, it shall be for food, and also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. 
So God set forth this natural cycle of events, but he puts man in the center. Then God saw that everything he saw everything he made and indeed it was very good. That's the first time he says it's very good when he made and created man. So evening and morning were the sixth day. See, when we understand that God desires an intimate relationship with us, something different than the rest of nature, we can realize that many times he breaks through, doesn't he? Doesn't he break through the apparent repetitive and tedious and monotonous world that we live in to give abundance and significance to our lives? Isn't that how we are encouraged to keep going? Because he doesn't just set things in motion and say, okay, you're, like was said once, an absent, he's an absentee landlord. It's not what he does. Not with you and I. He desires intimate intimacy. And he desires to give you a, a significant and abundant life. It's not just a cycle going around with no purpose. Verses 8 through 11, Solomon goes on. He says, All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which... of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. So we kind of get a sense of Solomon's discomfort with this. He's not comfortable with this perception of the world. It's caused him to come to the conclusion that nothing really is new. That's where we get that saying, there's nothing new under the sun. It comes from this book. See, based on his idea that the world is just an endless cycle of the same thing over and over again, and even though man longs for something new, nothing really new ever happens, to Solomon that's wearisome, that's burdensome. It's tiring, it's tedious to him. And we may be able to relate with that. I've had my time throughout my life where I felt like, you know, what's the purpose? What's, What's the point? You know, it's tired, you work. You know, people even talk about their lives in cycles. Yeah, I, I get up, I go to work, I come home, I have dinner, I do this, I get up the next day, it's like, Every day, right? And we may get caught up in that. And that's really, I guess that's just human nature. But, you know, when we think about anything is new, I mean, things, things are so new that we can't even keep up with them nowadays in the world of technology. Something new comes out and we're waiting for the next new thing to come out right after that. We can't even keep up. So we kind of grow accustomed to desiring and longing for that next new thing. What's new? What's new? What's new? Instead of being content in where we're at 
We search for the newest and fanciest, the one with the most bells and whistles, whether it's a car or a computer or the, the next iPhone. And as soon as we get it, we're... You know, we're looking for the next new one to come out. See, it's kind of human nature. We want something new. Paul encountered this. The Apostle Paul encountered this when he went to Athens to preach to the philosophers. Well, he didn't go there to preach to them. It just happened that it worked out that way. In that great sermon that he gave on Mars Hill, it says in Acts 17... Verses 18 through 21, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because, listen to why they thought that. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Agapus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is? of which you speak, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time, this is how they spent their time, in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. (laughs) What a way to spend your days. What's new? What's new? What can I hear that's new? What can I say that's new? What can I find out that's new? Solomon kind of felt the same way. And he searched and searched and searched and he came to the conclusion there's nothing new. See, the resurrection at that time, this read the resurrection of Jesus was a new thing to these pagans in Athens. And even in the church, don't you find that sometimes even in the church... People are looking for the newest thing. You know, the newest, the fanciest technology, the fanciest, uh, you know, light show and all of that stuff. Now, some things are helpful. Some things are used as aids. But that shouldn't be our focus. You know, we we need to be satisfied with just the systematic, simple teaching of the Word of God. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say about the Calvary style of ministry, simply teach the Word of God simply. Simply teach the Word of God simply. You don't want to cater to that desire, that fleshly desire for the next new thing. So he goes on in verses 10 and 11, Is there anything of which it may be said, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. So his observations have brought him to the conclusion that even if something seems new, it's either a rehash of something that was done before, like something 2.0, or he saw it also as the fact that we just don't remember very well. We don't have a very good memory. And we forget things. Remember, Solomon is declaring this under the sun, in his perspective of under the sun. 
And apart from God working in our lives, his conclusions might, might seem correct at some point. But when we include God in the equation, it adds a whole new dimension to how we see life. The Jeremiah 29.11 tells us, God says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Does that sound futile and vain to you? See, when we, look, when we put God in the picture, we don't have to look at life as an empty pursuit after things that never satisfy or a rehash of the things that have gone before. God has a specific plan and a purpose for each of us. He sees us as unique and special. And so, again, our perspective needs to be more than just what happens under the sun. Solomon goes on and he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man, which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, it is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. So before we get into the next chapter and on, where Solomon actually starts conducting and launching into this great experiment, he puts forth some of his uh, presumptions or presuppositions. In verse 13, he declares that all the seeking and searching for the meaning of life brought him to the conclusion that God gives us this life. He admits that. But it's just full of trials and difficulties. The word in verse 13 for burdensome, check out this definition of the original word. It means bad, disagreeable, malignant, unpleasant, evil, giving pain, unhappiness, misery, and displeasing. And the word for task means occupation or job. So Solomon is basically saying here, Hey, thanks a lot, God. You gave me this so-called gift of life, but all it is is a disagreeable, malignant, bad, unpleasant, displeasing, evil job which only gives pain, unhappiness, and misery. Thank you very much. But we have to realize that God never intended that to be the way. He intended for man to live in harmony with one another, in harmony with God. But because of sin, we're now subjected to this other influence in our life. And after, the, after hearing that definition, I think of Romans 8.22, where Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now because of this sin that just influences every single thing in this world. But again, we need to see the full picture. We need to see the full picture. Life is not about only this 
horizontal experience. We need to include God in the equation in order for any of it, any of it to make sense. See, Solomon only sees vanity and emptiness. And sometimes we can use our lives under the sun as kind of our escape from reality. But it won't satisfy. No matter what we use or try to use to fill our lives with meaning and significance, it's only in the physical realm. It'll never truly fulfill us. And he declares here in these verses that things that are broken just can't be fixed. They can't be fixed. The past can't be changed. And the world is very rarely right. And to appoint those sentiments, we can look at and say, yeah, I, I, I feel that sometimes. They're, they're kind of mostly true. But God. See, He has the power to straighten out crooked things. He has the power to provide ultimate perfect justice in an unjust world. And although God cannot change the past, He can change the way it affects us. He can change the way we look at it. Look what, I, look what Isaiah says in chapter 61. And tell me if you're not encouraged by this. 61 verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Are you bound in sin? Do you feel like you're, you're not free? Do you feel brokenhearted? Jesus has come to heal that. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. That's justice. That's the justice that we seek in this life that sometimes doesn't come about. But God is ultimately always just and fair. To comfort all who mourn. Are you mourning? Is there something that happened in your life that now you, you're crying out to the Lord? He'll be there. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them what? Beauty for ashes. Beauty for ashes. You know, they used to pour ashes over their head and, uh, uh, and sackcloth when they were in mourning. But God wants to give you beauty for that. The oil of joy. Oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. How encouraging that picture is. Going against the backdrop of Solomon's cynical view of life. Listen, life sometimes does feel like exactly what Solomon is saying here. But we need to keep the picture, the full picture, in view. We need to have this perspective uh, of that God's going to work things out. We don't know how, we don't know when, but He will. Not this defeatist negative outlook that Solomon had. He can make the crooked straight. He can provide what is lacking if we just trust. 
Last couple of verses. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I'm beginning to feel sorry for Solomon. Poor Solomon. He told himself that greatness, wisdom, and knowledge should be able to provide all the answers to the questions of life. But he found that that wasn't true. And if anyone had access to wisdom and resources to do this research, Solomon did. He was the richest and wisest man who ever lived. People would come, there's an account in the scriptures that people would come from all over to hear his wisdom. And many times, see, he wasn't totally without, um, without wisdom. Many times he made some very wise decisions, very wise choices. So we're not going to bash Solomon all the way through this book. But this quest, this quest for meaning, also took him some, down some paths that were not very wise. That were not very wise. And you know, it's funny in these verses that it says, I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. It seems like they're opposites, and they are. So he figured, well, let me try wisdom and see if that works. Oops, all the wisdom in the world didn't satisfy, didn't make me happy. Well, let me try foolishness and let me see how that goes. And that didn't provide satisfaction either. Listen, again, I will say it. We are very, very grateful and not, not at Solomon, Solomon's uh, uh, detriment, but we're very grateful that we don't have to go through the testing and the experiments that he did. He did it all for us. And we're going to see it as we go further in this book. And we don't take it lightly that he had to go through this and experience this. But we want to have the right perspective. In closing, we see that Solomon searched and searched for life's meaning. And and that's not a bad thing. But because he was searching outside of God's plan, because he was searching mostly under the sun, he never found it. He never found it. Let's not make that same mistake. Instead of life being this monotonous, closed circle, Christians should have the viewpoint that it is fulfilling. It's an open door with God leading and guiding us into significance and into meaning. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. 
On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.